Hello and welcome to the Football Collective podcast. The Football Research podcast highlighting members of the collective, their research and all football related things in their life. On this episode we're going to be discussing women's football with our guest who is an ex-professional footballer for Liverpool, Everton, AZ Alkmaar, Bristol Academy and the mighty, mighty Leeds United. But um, without me going on about Leeds United too much, we'll just welcome in Alex now. How are we Alex? I'm well, thanks, Josh. Good to hear from you. It's very good to hear from you too. Um, we'll just tell everyone before we start. We've 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 got a confession to make about this, haven't we, Alex? Go on. Uh, so <laughs> we did attempt to record this around around about a week or so ago, but between my girlfriend's cat coming in and ripping up the sofa with its claws, and then builders where Alex was in the coffee shop, the sound quality wasn't very good. So we've had to start it again. So uh, yeah. Honestly, is the best policy, especially for our loyal football collective <laughs> listeners. All three of you out there. Cheers, Dad. <laughs> so, just if you'd like to just tell us a little bit about your background and, and what led you into academia and obviously a little bit about your, your footballing background. Yeah, so um, I've played um, football, obviously, from a really young age, from maybe eight or nine. I, um, I was lucky enough to be part of um, Everton, um, who were... At the time, Liverpool, uh, I support Liverpool, so they didn't have a, a good um, women's setup. Um, certainly not for, for youngsters, and Everton were really, and still really are, about um, driving youth through to the first team. Um, so I played from them uh, for them for, from a young age, eight or nine. Um, stayed with them till I was about 18. And then it was becoming a little bit, um, a little bit stagnant. I wanted a, a bit of a move and... Luckily enough, Leeds, Leeds were building um, a new project at the time, and they just had a lot of investment from the men's from the men's side, um, and they were sort of probably one of the first couple of teams to offer paying expenses and a, and a signing on fee and, and, and etc. So, um, a couple of us um, went up to Leeds from Liverpool, and I stayed there for yeah, I think it must have been six years or something like that and it was probably the most enjoyable part of my career um, I had some really great coaches even better teammates we built something like really special at Leeds and we were quite a successful um, young team some of the players now um, Steph Houghton Carly Telford you know Jade Moore they're all senior um, internationals so we had a really great a great team um, and it was really an important period in my in my career um, really enjoyed it Went back to Everton. Um, that was a short but successful period. Um, we won the FA Cup. Um, had another great, great manager, Mel Marley. Um, obviously, brilliant teammates, all um, really experienced senior internationals. Um, and then the opportunity come um, to go over to AZ Alkmaar, and it was it was an interesting one because I was I was in the third year of doing my my degree then. Um, and it was sort of agreed by the university um, really nicely, actually, to give me a bit of a sabbatical um, for two years, I think, on my studies. Um, and that meant I could go over and um, experience Azed Alkmaar, um, which was, an ex- I, I definitely describe it as an experience, a difficult one, a brilliant one. There was, you know, tough times, really great times. I've still got really great friends over there. So, yeah, that was a, another good experience. Went to Bristol. Um, I did really a uh, young team. Um, not a great experience with the manager. Um, just didn't see eye to eye. 
Um, but you know, had another successful time. You were, I think, we reached the Champions League for the first time in the club's history. Two FA Cup finals um, in two years or three years or something. I can't really remember. Um, and then finally ended up on loan at Liverpool for the last six months of my career. Before that, I went travelling for a year and decided to take really take academia seriously. So yeah, that's a bit of my background anyway. <laughs> so obviously, you've had a brilliant career there, um, and then you've gone into academia and, and joined the collective, but. What was it with all your experiences uh, that made you want to join the collective, and um, and what is it about the collective that you value? Um, to be honest, one of my, my supervisor, uh, really fortunate for me, was um, one of the founding members, um, put his ideas across for the collective, um, Professor John um, Hewson. So it was him who suggested me to join the collective, and at the at the start, it was you know it was in its infancy, and it was really just described to me as a, as a unit of um, inclusivity and sort of a place where I'd be allowed to, to grow and develop and express myself, not under any great scrutiny in terms of um, academic scrutiny, but in terms of um, it would be positive for my development as an early career researcher. And, um, yeah, I spoke to um, Dan Parnell um, and Paul Widdup, um, you know, expressed my interest in joining the collective. They were really, really positive about it. Um, and in fact, I presented my work for the first time at the collective in 2016 in November at FC United. And that was a, it was a nerve-wracking experience, um, just sort of the PhD was really new, the whole situation was really new. But it was something that really gave me confidence going forward. Everyone was really, really helpful. Um, I had some really great comments from, you know, various academics. And it made me a little bit more, um, I suppose, less apprehensive going forward in terms of in terms of my, my research. So, and in terms of your research, can you tell us a bit more about your PhD, obviously without giving too much away, and what are your ambitions post this, um, and, and what are you going to try to do with the research? Yeah, so basically um, I'm, I'm two and a half years in now, um, so I'm just in a, in a frantic writing up period, um, and my PhD broadly looks at um, football as work for women because now, um, since 2011, there's been an employment opportunity for elite women footballers um, to be professional footballers. And since 2011, um, since the inception of the, the league, the, the game's gone from strength to strength um, on the field. The players have improved. You know, that's evident with the Lionesses' success, Champions League successes for various clubs, Chelsea, City. Um so I, I really was basing my um, research on my own experiences and sort of wanted to look a little bit more um, on at off the field stuff. So employment policy uh, and players' players' experiences at work, um, you know, their concerns as professional footballers. Because in my experience, it was sort of like we were swept up in this area of professionalism in terms of it's something that we built a dream on. I think most, if you ask most players of my age, we didn't think it would be possible in our in our era to, you know, even be, be able to be called a professional footballer. Um, so whilst we were all getting swept up in this professionalism, there was a lot of things that were lacking in terms of the welfare, well-being support, and really the employment policies that were um, 
sort of not involved, you know, in, in contracts and things like that. It's a really under-researched area because, you know, it's a really new area of research. Um, and it's something that I've, I've obviously got access to um, and something that I feel really passionate about. Going forward with the research, I mean, I hope um, I'll, I'll be given a postdoc opportunity because um, a lot of my friends play all over the world, you know, Holland, Sweden, America. There's there's lots of countries that are experiencing this new area, era of professionalism. And I want to do like a cross-cultural comparison to see how players' experiences are in different countries and, you know, whether they're the same, different, better, worse, you know, what, what do players have in Sweden, for example, that our players here don't have and why. Um, you know, there's just been recent research from FIFA Pro and, you know, quantitative research about highlighting the lack of short, um, medical and maternity care for players. That's certainly evident in the WSL. There's really short contracts. But the, the, the problem that you've got with quantitative data is that, you know, the players' voices are really overlooked and how they feel about these things and how it affects their well-being, the mental health um, and welfare. So my plans for the PhD is purely to write it up as best I can. Um, and I really I hope that I can take it to the PFA um, or, the P or the FA and give them the data and really start trying to implement some positive changes for the players that are coming through, the players that are currently playing in terms of their um, contracts and their experiences as professionals. So it sounds like everything's just aligned at the right time for you doing this research, um, jumping in, mm -hmm. jumping in at the time of professionalism, just at the at the end of your career to obviously help everybody else. But how did you find the transition from going from that professional football background just straight into academia? And um, what sort of if there's anybody else out there that's obviously done a degree and then had a bit of time off, what what would your advice be if you're jumping into a PhD like that what, what's been the most challenging and what's been the most enjoyable aspects of that um, if you, to be honest I, and if you would have asked me probably five years ago would I be doing a PhD now I probably would have laughed um, because I'd done my degree because uh, partly because I was semi-academic if, if you could call it that but also um we were offered um, an opportunity at a club I was playing for at the time that you could either sort of get more money in your contract or they'd pay um, for your education. And I, I thought it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Um, so that sort of formed me basis of my interest in terms of sociological aspects. Um, then went on to do a master's. Now, the jump from the, the, the degree to the master's was massive for me because I was still playing um, professional football at the time and it was really difficult to, to manage doing a master's and also and, and, and training every day and, you know, and the emotions and all them type of things that come with it. But the positive aspects are that you... I, I, I slowly started to come outside of the football bubble um, because you saw... Have ingrained um, in this world that all that matters is football and training and and all the things that go with it and your teammates are your friends and you don't really experience outside life so much and so for me it was a little lesson in socialising with people that were not footballers um, and who didn't really sometimes even care about football and that was refreshing really refreshing for me as a as a as a human being. Um, so that was really a great positive aspect for me. Um, 
I was also really lucky in the in the masters that I did because I had some really good lecturers and um, we had some guest lecturers, Martin Roderick, who suggested to me that you know a PhD would be possible in terms of like my my interests and also uh, my area of uh, my my experiences. So I I think like in terms of it sort of just happened in in a way that I thought the the area of research was something that was massively under research. I had access, so I thought, why not go for it? Um, but it's it's been a strange process in terms of you know learning or developing skills that I didn't necessarily have as a footballer. Um, so that's been a, a challenge for me. Um, but I suppose what's softened the blow a little bit is meeting people in the collective. And it's not, um, in my experience, obviously there are some super amazing academics in there, but alongside that you've got the people who are willing to um, accept or there's an accept, a level of acceptance that I haven't experienced in other um, conferences and things of people who are not, um, you know, on the on the side of being a, a super academic or a pure academic, as you could, uh, as you could call it. So I think, I think you've just got to sort of take a leap of faith, um, you know, see if it works out for you, meet some really good people, grow your network, um, try and engage with you know, all different types of people, not just in your in your area of research. I think that's really been key for me as well. Um, and just try and learn as much as you can. I mean, I've got two two brilliant supervisors and I've just got one of them's left and I've just got Joel Rookwood on board, so I'm really excited at that prospect. I think he'll bring another um, critical eye over me over my work, which I'm looking forward to. Um, and just try and, yeah, grow your network, um, engage with people, meet people for coffee, try and talk a little bit more about your research and you know get people's different opinions and ideas be malleable be prepared for criticism um, and if you've got all them them things or you, you're you willing to learn or develop those things i think a career in academia is something that's really exciting it's you know it opens doors and um it's something that can be really really um really enjoyable if you if you put your heart and soul into it so Moving away from that now, um, in in the conference in Glasgow in November, you'll be chairing a keynote panel with your old teammate Lucy Ward and uh, Dr. Stacey Pope. Can you give yep. us an insight into what we might expect from this and and what sort of things we might be expecting to to cover? Yeah, um, so um, the panel is critical reflections of women and football, um, and I was really um, privileged to ask be asked to chair a panel, um, also a little bit anxious and apprehensive because I've never done anything like that before so again um, stepping outside my comfort zone a little bit but um, I was delighted that Stacey um, agreed to be part of it um, she's someone that I really admire and look up to um, of course with her work and then Lucy is um, you know an ex-teammate of mine um, someone again that I really admire and I'm really really honoured that she's actually agreed to be part of it because she's really busy and things so there are two people. Um, I'm going to have a third person on on, on board. Um, I haven't quite worked out who or what type of person that's going to be yet. Um, but we're going to be looking at um, issues which cover a broad um, spectrum, really. So first of all, I'm going to be looking at 
um, players because that's my area of expertise. So talking a little bit about people's experiences of you know how the trajectory of women's football, where it was, where it is now, um, and really cast the critical eye over what what have we done wrong. Um, how can we improve the game? I mean, at the minute, we're in a situation in women's football where it is starting to mirror um, the immoral aspects of of men's football in terms of, you know, you know, the disparity between players and clubs is enormous. I'm, I'm going to be asking questions whether the FA, the FIFA, UEFA, are these organisations doing enough to look after our, our women footballers? Or are they merely just trying to attempt to stick in a quality box in terms of, you know, we're doing it too. You know, we're an equal, we're, we're promoting equality and all these things. Um, the way the quality, um, I'm going to try and unpick a little bit and, you know, get people's opinions on what is equality, what is equity, what can women expect from football? Um, do we expect too much? Um, are we operating in a, in a world where we think we should be equal? These type of issues that I want to really look at. Um, I then want to talk a little bit about Stacey's research, about you know fans, and I haven't actually talked to Stacey or Lucy about this yet, so this might be news to them. And sort of like talk a little bit about Stacey's experiences of, of researching women's fans and how the dynamic between fans is changing, the identity um, that fans feel, um, and, and issues around that. Then Lucy, obviously, she's got a such a broad knowledge experience. Um, she worked at Leeds United for donkey's years um, as the education officer. She brought players through, you know, Fabian Delph, all these players she she regularly stays in contact with. So she has got experience of both men's and women's football. She now works as an education officer for the Premier League. Um, and education is a massive issue that I want to talk about because at the moment, um, women footballers are being offered contracts um, good contracts, but they're at a really young age where they're vulnerable, um, so they might not value their education, but the career is short, the contracts are short, the injury risk is high, um, and although the FA is slowly trying to implement policy around, it's very elitist, it's very specific, it doesn't cover a broad range of, of people, or it's not inclusive, in my opinion. Um, so I really want to talk about what opportunities are offered to men um, and how we can sort of try and close the gap a little bit um, and make our players more well-rounded. As I mentioned before, when I stepped away from football and tried to become a little bit more well-rounded, I have no doubt that if I was doing that while I was in me, you know, the peak of my career, I would have improved as, as, a, as a footballer because you think differently and you approach situations differently and, and things like that. So I think these issues are really, really um, critical for the game moving forward. Um and then finally, I do want to talk a little bit about you know current issues in women's football. So the, the race, the race situation um, between Enya Luko and Mark Sampson, I think that is an area that requires a lot of debate. Um, the movement of players, um, how how players um, move throughout um, clubs, countries, you know, the EU, Brexit, all them things are, are topics that I'm I'm hoping to cover in a short period of time. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be a great panel. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing, obviously, the, the different perspectives on that. Um, and I read yeah. something around the what if camp- the hashtag what if campaign and that suggested mm-hmm. that it's helped to progress more equality in football. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that and, and what benefit 
do you think women's football has got from it, if any, and, and do you think it, it, it aids or do you think it's detrimental? I've got mixed opinions on the What If campaign and also women, the women in football um, group as a whole. Um, I think what they do in the on the surface is really advantageous for play uh, for for women generally in football, and I think that's a problem. It's very very general. It's 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 non-specific, and I think that's where it becomes a little bit like, in my opinion, a little bit detached. Um, I don't feel part, like they they can do for me what, what I need or for, you know, certainly the players that I'm speaking to, I don't think they do enough. I think they've got a really, a great opportunity to sort of impact the game a little bit more than what they're doing. But okay, if we look at the What If campaign, it's a social media campaign, which is obviously massive at the minute. Um, it's looking to sort of, provide opportunities um, for women in organisations that they wouldn't have had before. Um, so it's a 10-year anniversary um, campaign, and it was born out of, it was a, born out of a pro bono competition um, to support grassroots women's sports charities. So, you know, if we look at it in that instance, they've got really great people on board, Jackie Oatley, Anna Kessel, and they're, they're people who are really making strides um for women in football, if you are in that bracket of people, i.e., very elite, you know Jackie Oatley. She's a she, she's brilliant, Jackie. But she everybody knows her. She's a you know a media presenter, and same with Anna Kessel. But I think once we start moving a little bit more underneath that, it becomes a little bit more problematic, a little bit more detached. And I think it is an elite environment. Um, I think, for example, they do um, workshops. And now these workshops are brilliant if you can afford them. Five hundred pounds in London. Now, for me, as a working class person, if I'm if I haven't got any money or contacts in that in that area, there's no chance that I can go to anything like that. So it becomes a little bit inclusive and a little bit, you know, not possible for for everybody to to attend or to to learn from these people. Now, I think as part of the What If campaign. Um, that, sh- that should be opened up. The doors should be opening for people to step in to them places, and we be- we become um, sort of there's a there's a there's an without I suppose it becomes insular because it's inaccessible to everybody, and I think part of being part of women in football or these these other groups that support. Um, discriminatory um, issues it should be accessible and I think that is my um, big problem with it but I think you know the pledges that have been confirmed for the for the what if campaign are really big Beth Fair, Sky Sports, Twitter um, you know they're really Barclays are things that we want to access organisations that we want to access sorry um, but I think for me, there's a little fear that it becomes too detached and too elitist and all these things. I think we need to be very careful of not just creating another, you know, FA or something like that where you don't feel like it's possible to manoeuvre your way through or to be part of be part of something that's meant to be very inclusive. Very interesting perspective from you there. 
and you mentioned that within your research that football, uh, women's football, sorry, has had significant changes in the past uh, decade, and even yeah. even in even for me looking in the the last even five years, there's quite an astronomical move. You, you see, like the women's team playing a lot more at Wembley and a lot more of the media attention. But yeah. away from that, um, obviously, apart from like the obvious casual fan ones that people like uh, myself can see, can you highlight some of the changes and offer some thought on, on what? can be done more to develop it and keep changing it and keep innovating for the better? Yeah, I think, you know, the changes that have been um, implemented um, by organisations such as the FA and, you know, clubs that are really um, getting behind their, their women's teams is enormous for women's football. I think the problem that we have is we become um, too reliant on... Um, men's football and I think the FA are guilty of that a little bit because although um, they are supporting women's football um, you know in the initial outset um, the FA expected public funding to support the FAWSL and it was only um, government intervention that um, prevented them asking for sporting loan money or government money um, and then really the FA had to put their hand in their own pocket and, and sort of fund the league if if, if what they say, that women's football is a priority to them, then that should have not be paid by, by public funds, obviously. So I think if I look back now from 2011, um, there's been some brilliant changes. I mean, I think what gets overlooked is that is the players that are driving these changes, really, in terms of what they're doing on the field. So, um, you know, the Lionesses' success back-to-back in um, 2015-2017 was pretty unbelievable. Um I think by Man City, Chelsea, Arsenal, and maybe we can refer a little bit to Liverpool because they won the league back-to-back for two years running. I think that's really positive. But I think the danger is, and we need to be very, very careful about how much reliance is is on men's football. I think there needs to be a lot more transparency. For example, I think the FA could do very well by allowing the women's teams to have a sponsor for themselves, because at the minute um, it's under one bracket of Nike, um, and there's a very limited transparency about um and I know this only purely because I've been trying to find out facts and figures about you know how much does women's football actually bring into the FA. We don't know. And for me, that's really a concern that we don't actually know how valuable England Lionesses are or how valuable Manchester City are independently. Um, I think that's a problem. Um, but talking of positive things, I think um, by increasing um, the social media aspects are massive. But again, I'll say it with a note of caution because there's a lot of pressure on the players now to sort of... Um, you know, this tagline that that has attracted a lot of attention is sort of inspiring a generation. And, you know, if you talk to players, they, they, they want to be role models, and they are, they are role models. But I think the word role model gets used a lot um, in terms... And there's connotations of, of negative connotations attached to that in terms of, like, actual pressure that players are under um, to perform and sort of be this happy, smiley, approachable player when, you know, the human beings as well and the part of the part of the FA um, set up is to sort of control women's football in terms of players must be accessible to fans at all times. And whilst I think again this can be positive, we need to be very careful with what we're expecting players to be accessible because 
you know, in terms of even like welfare, you know, child protection, all these things that there needs to be a heightened awareness of the problems that can come. Also, with the positives of you know ameliorating the game and making it really accessible to to fans and things like that. But I think there needs to be a note of caution, and I think that's part of what my point that I'm trying to get across in the research is. Whilst on the surface it's very, very positive, everything that we're doing is, you know, women's football, great, we're doing this, blah, blah, blah. Underneath that, there's a little slightly dark dynamic bubbling underneath at the surface that we're not actually looking after the players as individuals, and I think that's a bit of a problem. But I think the FA are really trying to push the agenda to get more women coaches, more fans, and I think that's really the key to it, is, is fans. I think... They may have made a mistake moving the game back to the Winter League because it becomes then direct competition for the men's game, unless they're planning on doing double headers. But the problem is with the FA, the, 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 I think they've restructured the, the FAWSL four times in six years. So there's limited consistency. Play, you know, Fans don't know whether the, when, when the team's playing at home or playing away. You get messages from fans saying, are you home or away this week? So the organisation really needs to be sharpened up. Um, I was reading yesterday about um, how the Swedish league and the Dem- the Danish league operate, and um, if if they get a fixture cancelled off, uh, called off, they get a fine from their from their football association. Whereas our football association are readily willing to change football fixtures. The, uh, you know, whenever it's necessary, the, the fixtures will get changed, um, and that, the information is not really generated then for fans. And this is a bit of a problem. There's a disconnect between teams and FA and fans because the fans really don't feel like they're, they're being looked after. And it's something that I actually want to touch on with Stacey um, in the in, in the panel. But I think on. You know, if we look at it just with rose tinted glasses, it's really positive. But I think there's a lot of research on a lot of um, criticism that needs to be had. Um, it's not all positive, and you know, even for example, when England didn't reach the set, the finals of the Euros, um, the the media seemed to be really unwilling to criticise the players. Now, if that was the men's team, they'd be getting you know, fair criticism if, if somebody didn't play well. And the players want that, they encourage that because then they feel legitimate in a field um, where they might have felt delegitimate for a long time. Um, so I think, you know, there's lots of components that need improving. Um, but the game's been improved, improved vastly, um, but there's a long way to go. There's a lot of thought-provoking stuff you said in there, and especially for myself thinking about it. And a lot of the fixtures being called off. I read some brief research um, a few weeks ago. I wouldn't be able to give you the figures, uh, honestly. But a lot of a lot of playing hours and a lot of opportunities to play have been lost through yeah. uh, the FA just not having the the correct sort of facilities within the country. And then the stuff you say around um, transparency as well. It's a very interesting, um, very interesting. Uh, subject to talk about which I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, so that brings me on to my final question obviously apart from your, your keynote panel what are you looking forward to most in, uh, at the conference in November and if people aren't coming along why should they? Um, I think if people aren't coming along why should they? I think it's um, an environment that's really enjoyable um, it's not you know 
one of them things where you're going to be bored to death by people's presentations. Um, all the presentations that I've heard over the last couple of years have been thought-provoking, they've been interesting, they've been diverse, and I think that's a big key. Um, they tick a lot of boxes at the Football Collective, and that's really, really important, especially for for female academics such as myself and another um, female academics, um, or minority academics, should I say. Um, I think... You know, it's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to network. Um, th- that's that's really a valuable part of the of the collective. Um, what I'm looking forward to, um, I'm I'm hoping that I get my panel over and done with pretty early. So Dan and Paul, if you're listening, I'd like to <laughs> as soon as possible. Paul, Paul, last now, lads. Can you sort it out for me, Josh, please? <laughs> now, um, I think I'm looking forward to the um, the, the latest panel that's being um, introduced, the politics one. Um, that was something that politics is something really um, valuable to me and something that I really um, and take a big interest in. And last time I watched Danny Fitzpatrick's um, presentation and I found it so interesting. I actually, you know, really sparked a lot of... Um, different types of interest for me and so I'm really looking forward to that um, panel um, I'm, and I'm just looking forward to sort of just um, catching up with people and watching people's other presentations and really learning to be honest you know even just like presentation styles and how people answer questions and really learning from professional people that you don't really get the opportunity over two days to sort of be in that environment and people that you really admire and look up to and see how they operate and um, socialise and you know all, all things that um, you don't get the opportunity to do on a day to day basis so I'm I'm really excited I think the you know the location of it um, makes it even more exciting um, Glasgow is just a fantastic city um, I've never been to Hampden Park so I'm really looking forward to that um, and I've heard that there's um, going to be lots of good music about as well so I'm looking forward to that as well yeah, the the playlist. playlist yeah, the playlist. The yeah. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've not. I've not actually had a look yet. Um, I've not. I've not chucked my ten pence in, but we'll see. I've um, put a few um, offerings, but whether we get um, the nod or not is is debatable. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'll try to sort that out for you as well then. Yeah, thank you. You've got a list to go away. And <laughs> <for> me. <laughs> yeah. So once again, Alex, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, if you've not got your tickets yet for the conference, they're available on Eventbrite on the, on the for the conference on the 29th for the 30th of November. I can't speak today. I don't know what's up with me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, get your tickets. Get up to Glasgow. Come along. Listen to some bri- brilliant panels and brilliant chats. And we'll see you next time. And I apologise, listeners. I I am going on holiday for a month travelling, so this might be the last one for a while. But <clears throat> we will Look see you, you soon. Josh, you. Yeah, we will see you soon. Uh, thank you very much, as always. Cheers, Josh. Thank you. Cheers. Bye, bye.